Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petra Spice, and this week we are doing part one of three on Ann Coulter, a media pundit that became a voice for the American conservative and changed the role of women and their opinions in the political theater world. A New York Times bestselling author of 12 books selling more than 3 million copies and by all definition a true firebrand to news outlets around the world. Born on December 8, 1961 or 1963, depending on where you research her, her upbringing would be indoctrined in a, a true idealism and love for the United States. Liberals build up this 50-year myth, um, you know, building monuments to the victims of McCarthyism and with, with, with Darwinism, they'll, they'll sue. I mean, if any public school teacher stated out loud one paragraph from my book in, in the Darwin sec sections, um, the teacher would be fired, banned from teaching any place in America after they build up this huge myth and bring lawsuits to prevent anyone from getting, giving any alternative information. Um, I come out with a book that a quarter of the book, a third of the book, is saying that Darwinism is a crock and nobody wants to argue back, which is curious. Um, and actually, a, a lot of scientists know it's a crock. They don't want to be harassed. I described the case of this Richard Sternberg at the Smithsonian. All he did was publish a peer-reviewed article. Um, I think it was on, I, I forget, the details are in my book. I think it was on the Cambrian explosion. Um, and, and that was um, this period um, where suddenly, in the blink <coughs> of an, an eye, uh, all animal phyla appear in the, in, the, in the fossil record. This is the biggest among the biggest problems with Darwinism, the, the fossil record that Darwin expected that should have been there if his theory were true, gradual incremental changes, one, one small novel biological change giving way to the next one. That isn't what the fossil record looks like. They've been looking for 150 years and not only that, the Cambrian explosion shows all of these um, animal types appearing at once peer-reviewed article written on it in the Smithsonian, and I described the persecution this guy went through. He had to hire a lawyer. They fired him. Um, they were accusing him of being, you know, not a scientist at all. He's, he's an orthodox priest. He's a fundamentalist. And, I mean, the email's going back and forth about this guy. So most of them, most of the scientists fa favoring Darwinism, you know, they're barely even scientists. They're biologists. They're not physicists. Um, they're not chemists, and you hear all the time, much like you hear about Hollywood actors um, who, are, who are secretly against abortion. <laughs> you always hear about actual scientists who know that evolution or Darwinism is a crock, but they just don't want to go through the, the hassle and the harassment involved. You must learn to embrace liberal hatred. And joining me this week, Brandon Hahn and Jocelyn Sharp. Born December 8, 1961 in New York City to Father John Vincent Coulter and Mother Nell and have an Irish immigrant ancestry. The United States has long been a destination for immigrants from around the world. Immigrants are people who leave one country to settle in another. And New York City has a rich tradition of welcoming people from other lands. Ellis Island and Castle Garden were usually the first stops for immigrants coming from Europe and other distant regions. Another wave of immigration took place in the late 1840s as a result of the Irish potato famine. A famine is a drastic and wide-reaching food shortage. Potatoes were the primary food source for most of the Irish population. But in the 1840s, a disease spread across the country, causing potato plants to turn black and rot. 
The famine lasted for five years from 1845 through 1849. During this period, approximately one million Irish died of starvation and disease. And nearly a million came to America to begin new lives. For decades after the famine, Irish Americans would tell stories of starving women and children whose mouths were green from eating grass. At the time of the 19th century, the Coulter family would be established in New York City after years of immigrant work, including ship laborers, tile making, and carpentry. Employment was also a problem. Greedy factory owners often took advantage of the immigrants' poverty and poor language skills to get cheap labor. Often men, women, and children would work long hours in sweatshops or factories with low wages and dangerous and dirty working conditions. Children were especially at risk. Child labor was usually the result of kidnapping or an arrangement with desperately poor parents. Sometimes children were sent out as beggars, roaming the streets of New York City. The living conditions for many immigrants were equally horrifying. All too often, crowded slums were the only housing a family could afford. These tenements were known for their crowded and dirty conditions. And violence was common. The Five Points area of New York City was notorious for the large number of gangs and frequent riots. But the immigrant experience is not just about hardship and discrimination. Many established new, successful lives here. Immigrants have been coming to New York for centuries, and they continue to arrive every day. Her father John was born in 1926 and grew up entirely in his youth through the Great Depression, which lasted until the late 1930s. And which is why I make the point that during World War II, Republicans were slow to respond to the threat of Hitler. That is indisputable. FDR was magnificent um, in, in fighting World War II. But once we were hit at Pearl Harbor, the Republican Party did not spend World War II taunting FDR about Hitler didn't hit us at Pearl Harbor. Why are we going after Hitler? Where's Hitler? I mean, you can't, you can't even imagine that. But we've become so accustomed to the Democratic Party opposing the reasonable national defense objectives of the country that people don't even notice it. I think I, think I could win a case in court that people who think we should not go to war because France doesn't approve are not patriotic. <laughs> By mid-1940s, John would fight in World War II and return home where President Roosevelt would sign a GI Bill allowing World War II veterans many benefits, including higher education, which John took and graduated with a college diploma. June 22nd, 1944. Today, Americans fighting in World War II won a victory far from the battlefield. For that was the day President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, otherwise known as the GI Bill of Rights. Although the war still had just over a year to run, the government wanted to assure opportunities for returning men and women in uniform. The police can't handle them since the riot this morning. Above all, it wanted no repeat of the shabby treatment received by veterans of World War I, whose march on Washington in 1932 to demand promised compensation was met by active duty troops who dispersed them by force. By contrast, the GI Bill promised World War II vets a raft of benefits outlined in special films, starting with help finding employment. If they can't find you a job right away, you'll be given $20 a week 
up to a limit of 52 weeks. Relatively big money for the time, believe it or not, as was the educational assistance for GIs looking to go to college. The government pays all of your school bills up to $500 a year and living expenses of $50 a month or $75 a month if you have dependents. In 1947, nearly half the college admissions in the United States were veterans studying under the GI Bill. The ancestry of Ann Coulter was forced to leave an Irish famine that decimated Ireland, leaving millions dead or fleeing, and then her father grew up during the Great Depression and fought through World War II, allowing him to get an education in this country. What does America mean to him, and how is it represented in his family? So he's a first-generation American, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is growing up, I'm sure his mother and father were both telling him how bad it was in Ireland, how many people that they knew that probably died or, or left this planet as a result of the famine. Then you grow up during the Depression. There's still not a lot to look forward to, but at the same time, you still have a mother and father that is still telling you it's not as bad as it was in our homeland. Then you fight in World War II, and then you get out, you know, you see all this blood, you see all this carnage, you get an education. All it is is to him is he's just capitalizing on the opportunities that his parents are telling him are out there. That America is given to him. If yes. you think about it, he fought in the world and they're like, here, we're going to give you and pay for this education. So all that is going to give you a real strong idealistic view of this country. Um, yes, they often do these... Um these fake studies about how liberals are more likely to have advanced degrees, that's because they're mostly in education. And the only thing an advanced degree in education establishes is that you are stupider than someone without an advanced degree in education. He's going to have not only uh, the patriotism bred into him from living in the country and knowing that his parents went through something terrible, but the patriotism of serving your country. I mean, there's something about going through that war and doing all those things, especially when you're fighting and you feel like you have a reason to fight and there's like that moralistic thing behind it, that really changes the way that you look at fighting. And then to come home and survive all that, I mean, I'm sure that his patriotism was rooted in that his identity. There's no excuses in that household. Yes. No. There's nothing nothing you can tell. But dad, I hurt my toe. What? (laughs) Guess what they did when I hurt my toe back in the day. They cut it off and ate it because I had to make it home. Exactly. (laughs) I needed energy to make it home because it was the Great Depression. One night I was doing a radio show, um, and I do really go after the public schools and many public school teachers in chapter six of my book. And uh, the, the radio host told me, oh, we got a whole lot of teachers on the line. And by the way, I've just noticed generally a lot of the liberal calls into radio stations do come from public school teachers. They seem to have a lot of free time. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, this is going to be fun. I got a lot of angry public school teachers. And no, one after another, um, was calling in saying, thank you, thank you. It's like, it's like living in North Korea, teaching at a public school. You can't imagine what I go through. So I, I don't know the details, but as long as you're teaching something <laughs> rather than propagandizing, which is what so many um, of these government teachers do, or they're just in administration, you know, shopping at Lord and Taylor, as I also describe in my book, not teaching anyone, having no contact with a child. Now, by the 1950s, he would become an FBI agent and during this time would idolize Republican U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy. In early 1954, with his power at its peak, Senator McCarthy takes a gamble. Armed with the flimsiest of evidence, he takes on a respected institution, the U.S. Army. He claims 
it is infiltrated by communists and that senior officers are turning a blind eye. The explosive charges trigger public hearings in the Senate. Live TV coverage provides millions of Americans with their first sustained look at the crusading senator and his bare-knuckle methods. From this committee, activities may well determine whether this nation will live or die. I want to make it clear that the United States Army does not coddle communists. This committee knows that. The American people know that. For over a month, McCarthy and his team exchange fire with the Army's council. June 9, 1954. A lawyer for the Army, Joseph Welch, demands that McCarthy's staff release its secret list of alleged Army subversives. McCarthy responds by dredging up a past link between a young lawyer in Welch's firm and the Communist Party. I don't think you have any conception of the danger of the Communist Party. After years of bullying his victims, McCarthy is smug and confident. But Welch counterattacks. Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. I like to think I'm a gentleman. But your forgiveness will have to come from someone other than me. Millions of Americans watch. He was just bathing, he has some bathing. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? McCarthy's gamble, taking on the army, backfires. His charges don't stick. Many in his own party turn against him. Six months later, the Senate officially censures him. His reign of terror is over, and his reputation in tatters. He falls into the grip of alcoholism, which in 1957 kills him at the age of 48. McCarthy, in many ways, was destroyed by the power of television, a power that in the 1950s will only continue to grow. Joseph McCarthy was a U.S. Senator from the state of Wisconsin that during the 1950s became the most visible public face in the U.S. during the Cold War tensions between the U.S. and Russia, and he fueled many fears of a communist takeover. McCarthyism is modern history and in these times represents witch hunts, unsubstantiated accusations, and public attacks on character, especially in regards to patriotism. Um, my father was a lawyer. He's retired now, but my parents still live there, and my mother was a homemaker. Two older brothers, so five and all. All conservatives. 
I mean, I'm sure we have disagreements about things. We considered Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner an utter failure if we didn't argue about both religion and politics. What influence does idolizing someone like Joseph McCarthy have on the Coulter household? I mean, you're going to be by the book, strict. Everything's going to be do it exactly like Pete said earlier. There's no excuses. You do it. You get up. You are a stand up American 100 percent, no matter what what hand God has given you. And McCarthyism was a censorship type of thing as well in Hollywood. But in, in modern times, for people that don't get it, it's like, you know how everybody's calling someone a racist? One out of five of those people might actually be a racist. McCarthyism was that with communists. Oh, you're a communist. One out of five, definitely. And they would get paid. But there always was a ratio of accusations that weren't true. That's why they say it was a witch hunt mentality. That's what McCarthyism was. And there was no excuses. I mean, anytime that you would question the errors or the negativity that capitalism brought, you were seen mm -hmm. as a communist. Mm -hmm. It was a very scary time back in those days. It was very scary. And the fact that her dad was so ingrained in capitalism and America and red, white and blue. Of course, she's going to grow up like this <clears throat> to the person that we all know and not back down from anything that she says. In a column you wrote in 1991, Call Me Ms., you wrote, We are now more frequently raped, pimped, divorced, cheated on, and if one's dating proclivities run toward Democrats, expected to spring for dinner. But at least no sane man could dare speak the word miss. Freedom at last. It's not just because bras burned while men fiddled that I hate the feminists. The real reason I loathe and detest feminists is that real feminists, the core group, the great thinkers of the movement, which I had until now dismissed as the invention of a frat boy on a dare, have been at the forefront in tearing down the very institutions that protect women, monogamy, marriage, chastity, and chivalry. And surveying the wreckage, the best they have to offer is, call me Ms. That, by the way, is in the chapter of columns, mostly that were commissions by various publications, Wall Street Journal, National Review, Cigar Aficionado, and then when they received them, <laughs> decided no thanks. Um, that's why you will notice that I have set up my life so that I cannot be fired, I cannot be edited. <laughs> I mean, I suppose I could be, but um, it's all men at human events, and they will not be firing me. They, that's the only place where I have an official job other than that. I'm, I'm tired of spending time researching and writing something, particularly when it has been requested as that article there. And then, by the way, that was when I was practicing law. So I was kind of jammed. Actually, I was still in, in law school, I think. I was just getting out of law school. Um, so I was kind of busy. I spend this time reading what they want me to read, writing it up, and, oh, no, sorry, can you rewrite it? I just, oh, no, I can never rewrite it. The first time I write it is the way I'm going to write it. But I, I can't waste my life doing that anymore. I have the Internet. My life would be easier if I had a job with one of those glamorous government pensions, I might add. But short of that, at least people can read me now because I don't have to go through this layer of retarded people to get my work out. Having two sons during the 1950s and would be born in the early 1960s. And by her teenage years, the family would move from New York to New Canaan, Connecticut. Designs and vibes that draw you in like no other. In atmosphere. You're happy here. 
something to truly write home about. Life like a postcard. This is New Canaan, Connecticut. This is your home. Her brothers James and John were huge influences on her. While one of them attended law school in New York, he would encourage her to read books at 15 by economist Milton Friedman and even U.S. Secretary of Treasury William E. Simon. A famous Simon quote was, There is only one social system that reflects the sovereignty of the individual, the free market or capitalist system. My, my parents would travel a lot. They leave the country a lot. And when I was in high school, even starting around junior high school, my oldest brother, because he's a lot older than I am, was already in law school in New York, um, or maybe even out of law school. And so I'd come in and live with him in New York and commute back to New Canaan High School. We referred to it as the Dirty Air Program, <laughs> bringing kids from the boring, stultifying suburbs into exciting New York City. <laughs> And so I'd live with him on the Upper East Side and, and go out with him and then commute back to New Canaan to go to junior high school and high school. Oh, it was unbelievably great. Did you beg your parents to like travel more? Uh, yes. I had just broken up with my first boyfriend. I was 14 years old and I was moping around the house. And my brother was in law school then. And I was moping around all weekend. He had come out to visit and he wanted to bring me back into a law school party. And my parents agreed, I think, because I was mopey. So we pulled halfway out of the driveway and John said, hang on a second, the car was still running. He went running in, came running back out again, and he said, I just went in to tell mom and dad they never would have let me do this at age 14. <laughs> the authors and influences that would make her want to become a writer was steeped in understanding how systems worked and why. As a teenager, how are these interests outside the norm in the late 1970s? I mean, in the late 1970s, it was like disco, rock and roll. Like there was the the post-Vietnam uh, hippies. There's all these things that you could get involved. Roller skating was popular. There were so many pop uh, economists. Not on the top of the teen beat list for 1979. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just yeah, wasn't... There was, there, yeah, I, something tells me that Anne's parents were the ones that burned Beatles records, you know? Yeah. Like, I went to a Ramones concert with a high school boyfriend at age 16 down... Um, where was it? It's, it was at um, a place that is not for concerts now. Um... I can't remember the name of the place where we saw them, but one of these downtown places where the Ramones are playing. And I was wearing, you know, wide whale, lime green corduroys at a Ramones concert. But, you know, I didn't really notice. Thought, well, I guess I need long hair and ripped t-shirt and earrings through my nose to really fit in in this crowd. But it just... I like the Ramones. You know, in the late 60s and then 70s and stuff, there was a there was this sheet that got pulled back. This this uh, perfect Leave it to Beaver world, it wasn't what it was. And it was being exposed. And, on, and then after that, people started questioning America. Well, drug use was happening that you were seeing it started happening more publicly. Uh, addiction was being part of the conversation now. This was really the late 70s and the early 80s was when we started to see a little bit more of a capture of what our society is today. People were being a little bit less... 
uh, like you said, reserved. People were very protective of their private life. Like if they had an addict dad, nobody knew about it. It was similar to the culture today. People were more ingrained in how do you feel about it? Where's your heart at? Uh, uh, and opposed to, you know, how's it work and where's your head at? It was more like that. There was a lot of people leading with their heart instead of their, their head. And as a young person, for you to ignore all that and be like, no, I'm going to focus on where my head's at and how things work, that is difficult, I think, on a lot of ways. There's a little factoid I found that I found interesting about Anne, that she went to 67 Grateful Dead concerts. I actually did like the music, which is why people always say, how could you have followed the dead without taking drugs? No, I actually liked the music. We'd, we'd have drinks when we were there, um, and I'm not a teetotaler. But oddly, I know a lot of deadheads who don't take drugs. <laughs> They're all right-wingers. I think that probably, though, that it's very powerful to have that many male figures in your life so deeply rooted in that sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine that you could turn out to be any other way. And on top of that, these were male figures that pushed her to get an education and pushed her to be smart and pushed her to not be one of these, you know, not be barefoot and pregnant in the, in the kitchen. Yeah. She, she, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's no excuses. You're getting an education and yeah. <laughs> you're going to do this. There, this, you, there is no options. You're going to make us proud. That's, that's the kind of mentality that I think a lot of families like that will have. You cannot be barefoot and pregnant. And they know that. And they're like, I don't want to let people down. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. It's, it was, it's also great for the democratic party. The democratic party weirdly enough, hasn't been able to get a majority of white Americans to vote for them since 1948, other than the aberrational 1964 landslide. Um, that's kind of a tough record to run on if you can't get any white Americans to vote for you. Um, so Democrats just looked around the country and said, okay, you won't vote for us Americans? Fine, we're bringing in ringers. And that's what they did with Teddy Kennedy's 1965 Immigration Act. Apparently, our entire lives have to be dedicated to, um, you know, honoring the ascendancy of this one Irish Catholic, Catholic family. Everybody in the Kennedy family gets a prize. So, you know, Bobby and, and JFK got, got to have civil rights, um, but Teddy was, was in his room pouting and wouldn't come out until he got his own legacy. So they gave him civil rights for the entire world. It's like the belief of some weird hippie cult. The rest of the world has a right to move here, and you have to support them. That's, that's our immigration policy now. Um, so instead of people who had been populating America for the first four centuries of its existence, which was mostly um, British Isles, Germany, and Western Africans, um, suddenly we were taking the poorest of the poor, people from the most divergent cultures, you know, it's like, no, this isn't going to be difficult enough that they're poor and have no skills. Let's, let's make sure they also don't speak our language. And we have taken in now more than 50 million immigrants, 85% of them, this is since the 65 Act, it really started in 1970, 50 million immigrants, 85% from the third world, driving down wages, harming the working class, and the Democrats don't care. They're getting the votes. And the Republicans don't care because their donors want the cheap labor. By 1980, Ann Coulter would graduate from New Canaan High School and register to vote, giving the birthday of December 8th, 1961. But according to a driver's license issued, she was born on December 8th, 1963. So many feel she lied to be able to vote for Ronald Reagan. This speculation was never confirmed, and her actual birth date 
was never confirmed by her. They, they don't care about marriage. Gays talk about gay marriage because they think it will prove we like them. And so I just tell them, we like you. <laughs> we just don't like gay marriage. And, and as many of the callers mentioned today, I mean, marriage is the linchpin of civilization. It has nothing to do with gays. Um, it has to do with, yes, giving special benefits to mommy and daddy getting married before becoming mommy and daddy and staying married. And every possible incentive should go into that. Um, instead, you have every possible incentive operating the other way. Uh, subsidies for women to have children out of wedlock. And, oh, so many celebrations of the single mother. And the girls do it on their own now. Well, no, they aren't. We are paying for these single mothers. And with, I mean, I... I, I I do sort of feel sorry for gays to be coming to the sexual liberation window 30 years late saying, can we have our peace too? And the world explodes. But, you know, speaking as a conservative Christian, we didn't like that other stuff either. So, yes, it seems like we're finally exploding on, on this one issue, but it doesn't have anything to do with being anti-gay. It has to do with being very pro-marriage classic, as we call it, like New Coke and classic, <laughs> marriage classic. <laughs> Being indoctrined in the political culture after high school, she would immediately attend Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and help find the university paper, the Cornell Review, which has a history of conservative journalism. My two best friends from the High Crimes and Misdemeanors book tour are Bill Maher and Geraldo Rivera, Clinton's two biggest defenders. And I wow. think the reason for that is never did either of them say, I believe the president? Right from the beginning they said, of course he did it. He's a horn dog and we think that's great. And I can deal with people I disagree with. I can't deal with a liar. Indoctrined into the early 80s Reagan era politics and the upbringing surrounding her, do you think there was an open mind to her ideals? And was she taught to almost hate the opposition? I definitely think she was taught to hate the opposition. I can guarantee you her dad was like, these goddamn hippies, you know, and these Black Panthers. And I guarantee you he didn't call it that. But it was just, <laughs> I mean, let's be totally honest here. I can promise you that. But I'm just saying, you know. Are you, you McCarthy in her? Yeah, Are you, did you just call her dad I, racist no, with your McCarthyism? I'm just making an assumption. Okay, you're just go I'm, with the this assumption. This is not a fact. He's I making would, a statistical assumption based on that man's average age, his yeah. service history, and the year he lived in. Yes, that's all. That's all. That's all. Skin color, you know, just basic things. Fair assumption moving on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's striking how most of the experts promoting something like um, the global warming fantasy, they're all lawyers, they're not scientists. And um, similarly, another agency that um, I think is even a little more important than the EPA that has been destroyed by lawyers is the CIA. After Watergate, liberals decided, oh, this never would have happened if only we could defang the CIA. Um, you had Democrats vowing to dismantle the CIA, and they did. And now, now we don't have any human intelligence. We have a bunch of lawyers sitting around reading the Pakistani, you know, Daily Tatler. I'm just saying, though, like she grew up with these fears that her dad was probably con fears that weren't really fears. But I mean, she grew up with these things that people were praising. You know, things like things like the Black Panthers. It's like, yeah, sure. They, they were they were they scared some people, but they were also a beacon of hope for others. And, you know, she probably in the hippies, same thing. It's like, you know what? They they gave people hope. They gave people acceptance. They made people feel wanted. But at the same time, 
Were they pulling down? Were they attacking? Were they specifically attacking people that were capitalists? Absolutely. That's They blame capitalism for everything. Um, I don't know what you mean by consumerism. I don't think that's the beauty part of capitalism. The beauty part of capitalism is freedom. <laughs> people do what they want with their own money. Um, and if people are willing to buy enough tickets so that, um, as is often said, some guy who can just hit a ball like Alex Rodriguez can earn multi-millions of dollars, I think that's fantastic. That is what people are willing to pay for. Um, we're, we're not of our own volition going out and buying toilets that only have 1.7 gallons of, of water in them and are incapable of of actually being a functioning toilet. Put yourself in little Ann Coulter's shoes, you know, and think about being so obsessed with understanding the system. She knew Reagan's policies. She didn't vote blindly. I'm sure she read all the things that her dad and her brothers read. And I'm sure that watching those other groups went against everything that ever, that Reagan stood for, that everything that Reaganomics stood for, everything that uh, that whole party stood for in this time. So for her, I think that those probably just seemed like evil underbelly people it seemed like you know seeing a drug dealer on the streets was for her was anybody who stepped outside of the the line of you know uh, americans are born to wake up and work 40 hours a week until they're 70. american journalists and intellectuals greeted the depression with with elation because journalists themselves being maladjusted depressed miserable people they were so happy when when the rest of the populace became that way too um and also under under more of a socialist regime, the writers and thinkers would have so much more power, whereas um, in a system of capitalism, they have to sit around denouncing bestsellers as uh, bestsellers are hacks and... And I guess journalists are unread. And when you guys talk about hippie stuff, just on a side note, I did research some stuff and the, her favorite bands are like Grateful Dead and Fish and all those hippie bands. Secret so hippie. I'm just saying, like, so she, she might hippie. have a secret hippie, so she, she likes that jam band. And Coulter got some fringe in her she closet. Got some fringe. <laughs> but that just goes to prove that Every nobody fits in the Perfectly. bubble exactly. Yep. Nobody yeah. fits in the bubble you that can't you can't box anyone in. in. No one does it. There's not one single person not even that I've Coulter. ever met. Yep. I mean, I know a fair number of comedy writers. Um, among the Hollywood right wingers, I believe there is a disproportionate number of comedy writers because <laughs> a they're smart. <laughs> to be to be funny is hard. To have a political opinion. Not so hard. Um, they're smart and also, I mean, a lot of humor is politically incorrect. Now, journalism and the strength of law and winning arguments were a passion and motivation for her during this time. And like many youth in the 80s, she found a true leader during the Reagan presidency. Well, because I was too young to object, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, people moved to New Canaan allegedly for the schools. And yes, kids from New Canaan High School go to good colleges, but I maintain that if you moved the exact same population, and we still have our married parents at home, and we still have our parents with magazines and newspapers and books around, move the exact same population to the worst public school in New York City, we would all have gone to the exact same colleges, because it wasn't from what we learned in school. I mean, there were a few, but they were shockingly few good teachers and for most of them it's just a good gig my um anyone who's um i think my year from connecticut or around it was like a five ten year period um 
in sixth grade, <laughs> the state had decided we would study baboons all year. That would teach us about everything, history, sociology, and ooh, how the baboons relate to one another. Could I learn to diagram a sentence, please, please? <laughs> I've never learned memorization, which why Google is so handy for somebody like me. How about Shakespeare? Being a part of a club or group would always be a part of her life. She was a hardcore Christian and churchgoer in her entire life, but she also joined a sorority, the Delta Gamma sorority, and that mentality always gave her strength and an elite mentality for many people, but also keeps you focused on competition. And that competitive edge would always be present in her. But I must tell you, it has been my experience that the Jesuit schools um, produce uh, Linda Blair and the Exorcist in the audience. And, and most appallingly, um, it tends to be the female students screaming out things that for the first time I have put in demonic but I would not dare say on television on radio or even say out loud to one of my friends in the most intimate of moments they are so vulgar and monstrous they are genuinely demonic how vital is the desire to be competitive in a capitalistic society and will that desire to always win separate and divide people to you mentally oh god the most competitive people in the world lose half their friends on the way to the top and then yep. when they get to the top they lose half of those friends and then they buy 17 more let's right. just be honest like let's not pretend like their lives are garbage right right but i mean i'm not saying that they're garbage i'm just saying it's like the the will to win there's so many people out there that don't understand that other people will go to those links and when you go to those links that the other people won't go to you will be chastised um, how do you deal with the criticism like do you take it personally? I love it. I like the cleverer attacks better, and that's why I, I genuinely do like speaking on college campuses. I, I probably have given more college speeches than, than, than anyone else. And at the better colleges, I could tell how bad the protests were going to be and how bad the questions would be and whether the questions would be interesting questions, like your questions are, or if it would just be, you know, kids standing up, stamping their feet and calling me a fascist. Um, and it was basically, you could determine it by the SAT scores. And I hate to say this because I hate Harvard, um, but Harvard and Yale, they were fantastic. They were really fun. They're clever questions. They're interesting. And it's fun. Okay. So you don't, you don't mind taking on that kind and of And as for the vicious ones, um, and just, you know, the stamping your feet and telling, saying I'm ugly, um, I mean, I don't really mind them. I'm glad I'm getting under their skin. I just, not that intellectually stimulating. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing that I think is true about the world, and that a lot of people today in 2019 do not want to admit and are going to suffer greatly in their later years for it, and they will very much be in a position that they don't want to be in, because this world is competitive. The entire world is, and especially in a capitalistic society where the top dollar eats the most, right? The person with the most money has the most things. That's just the way it works. And if you want to have more things and a more fulfilling life, you need to have more money. And in order to have more money, you need to have a good job and have a good job. You have to beat out everybody else who wants that same good job. Here's the problem. Everyone thinks that, well, I shouldn't have to be competitive to be successful. That's a great mentality. But guess what? If six competitive people walk in and you're the one person who's not competitive, you've just put yourself at the bottom of the ladder. I am unaware of any conservatives who blamed it on Islamic terrorism. We didn't know what it was by the time we heard that 
that it had happened, he was already being described in the New York Times headlines as a Christian fundamentalist, gun-toting, Fox News viewing, I believe. Um, and his manifesto makes clear, as the caller said, he isn't a Christian. He uses the word Christian to mean non-Islamic. And it's not specifically... Um, I don't know, blacks, Hispanics, brown people. No, it is Muslims he does not like. <laughs> That's it. And yes, it was very anti-Muslim. But he talks about how he wants Jews and Buddhists and all the people of, of Europe to join with him in to fight against the Islamicization of Europe. That's what his big thing is. Um, whether or not that is connected to the insanity on some molecular level, I don't know. But for the New York Times to describe him as a, a Christian fundamentalist was an outrageous slander, something we've come to expect from the New York Times. What a lot of people with talent don't understand is you need to work hard. You can't just get by on talent alone. No. And unfortunately, we see too many messages these days that are just like go out there be yourself don't don't stab anybody in the back but i'm going to tell you right now i know too many people out there that'll stab me in the back to get what i have they'll stab you in the back and they'll stab pete yep just because he's pete just because he's pete just some pete <laughs> and this show <laughs> it's, communist. It's, it's, it's it's kind of i know shit <laughs> i just I, I just love that yeah, just communist <laughs> just because i'm pete in this show we deal with so many people that are individuals that don't fit in right this is the opposite. Yeah. This is someone that fits in. I mean, we can picture she understands her. that fitting in is where what it was going to help her rise. It helps her compete. It helps her win. Fitting fitting in will always help you win. And fitting in with the alone. winners mm. is what she's in her mind. Yeah. The, winners, the winners, the wealthy, the elite exactly. is what she wants. I mean, we can picture the pink sweater and the pearl necklace and already Le like leaders. Sometimes are are always going to feel like winners. The majority of the people that we have deemed winners. I have heard other people that are not winners call those people fake. They're fake. They're not real. They're fake. Is that what the, is that what it is, or is it just finding a way to work with others? But I do lots and lots of reading. I I I, I probably don't use end up using 80 or 90 percent of the books I read. Um, but that's what gets you to the good books. I mean, just for a small example, the books I read on groupthink and, and riots and financial panics and so on and so forth, um, I read all or part of probably a dozen such books. Um, but Gustave Le Bon was really, there it is. There is the father of groupthink. It is stated so clearly. It rings true today. Um, it was, I mean, Freud, Hitler, and Mussolini acknowledged Gustave Le Bon as as the father and and the expert on group thing when she gets roasted the way she handled it actually made me respect her a little bit more she was weird about it like she didn't know how to react like she was kind of weirdly smiling she was roasted on whose roast it wasn't hers. uh rob lowe's rob lowe's that's yeah what it was. she was roasted on rob lowe's and she was the one that got the most viciously attacked and she no went up there and close. do you know what she did she said i got two and a half minutes i'm gonna plug my book she didn't even do roast jokes yeah. and i kind of respected it a little bit because she was like i'm coming here to be the butt of everyone's joke she knew what was going on she's going into liberal hollywood and yeah. they're gonna destroy her she knew that and you know what i'm telling you man it's like there's there's little things that happen i don't agree with the a lot of the things that she writes but no. at the same time there is something that you have to respect someone who's not gonna back down yes. and she never changes her point she goes straight forward, straight forward, straight forward, and it doesn't make her a hypocrite. But and the way she was raised, there was no other road. Yeah, there right. wasn't a turnoff. There wasn't an exit on that road. Trust me, she grew up with two brothers. Like She, she can dish it out, but I guarantee she can take it. Um, in any event, I think what we need to do is get five of our Supreme Court justices, um, 
this is one of my plans, just for a laugh to start engaging in conservative judicial activism and to hallucinate the sort of rights equivalent to the rights being hallucinated by the liberal justices so that um, we'll suddenly have a right to a flat tax, um, we'll have a right to own a rocket-propelled grenade, um, we'll have a right to free champagne for blondes, um, all kinds of fantastic rights I can think of. Oh, I think we'll declare the withholding tax unconstitutional. And then our justices can admit it was all a joke because liberals can never understand how, how heinous their policies are until it's done to them. And the alternative plan to, I can state much more quickly, we need a conservative, a Republican executive to say in response to an insane Supreme Court ruling, um, for example, some of the Guantanamo rulings under President Bush, um, I wish he had just said, thank you for your opinion, the Constitution makes me the Commander-in-Chief. I, I am not giving, um, you know, special constitutional rights to terrorists uh, grabbed on, on a battlefield, as happened at Guantanamo. Um, thanks, Supreme Court. After graduating cum laude from Cornell with a bachelor's degree in history, she would attend the University of Michigan Law School, and she would be an editor at the Graduate Student Journal, the Michigan Law Review. Um, I hate to admit anything good about law school whatsoever, yet and still. One thing um, that I think most lawyers who become writers in general are better at um, or at least have an, a more natural inclination toward is to understand the other point of view, to see that there are two sides, to argue against the best version of the other side's argument, and not to build up straw mans. That doesn't work in court. I don't think it works in a book. Um, and if anything, I, like, I write my books a little too much like legal briefs, and I end up cutting some of the counter-arguments I'm making before anyone's made the argument. <laughs> she was also president of the local chapter of the Federalist Society, which is an organization of conservative and libertarians that advocate interpretations of the legal system of the U.S. in accordance with the original interpretations of the U.S. Constitution. From the beginning to this day, the Federalist Society has brought together people with different perspectives for debates and discussions. And it was the first modern organization in my lifetime that was designed to stimulate interest in information about and discussion and debate about the Constitution and civil liberties. One of the great things about the Federalist Society, in my view, is that it brings students and academics and practitioners together to discuss challenging ideas. For reference, five of the nine Supreme Court justices currently in America are current or former members of the Federalist Society. I can expect a serious debate um, from all points of view. And sadly, that's no longer true in academia. So to have a society which brings the diversity of viewpoints and for a full and open debate is really a delight. We're training our students to go out into the world and to represent people. You have to convince people who disagree with you that yours is the correct position. And the only way to do that is to engage them. Ann Coulter's education was set on understanding how to win, but also the language of the elite and understanding how power works in the U.S. What does this give her opinions and observations on politics in comparisons to others? Well, once you're taking on the voice and once you're embracing the voice of power, no one's allowed to bitch. That's the unfortunate thing. I think that's where 
she is such a firebrand and she just says what it is. And if somebody's like, yeah, but Anne, I got a baby. I don't give a damn if you got a baby. There's other people out there that have babies. You could do it too. There's no excuses allowed. So she's going to dig her heels in with every single argument. So in other words, would I have the Supreme Court say abortion is unconstitutional? No, I really wouldn't, though. I'm so ticked off about 30 years of us pretending that abortion is in the Constitution. I'd sort of like to pay them back. Uh, I, 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 no, I think we should. I, I, the Constitution is the most brilliant freedom promoting document ever conceived in the minds of men. And that is because of, of what you say, uh, the concept of federalism. Um, if, if you want to live in a state that, that sells porno at the corner market um, and that allows, um, you know, nude dancing uh, and, and, you know, whatever, driving at 80 miles an hour, um, you can live in that state. And if you don't like it, you can move. And at the end of the year, we'll compare venereal rates and, you know, unwanted <laughs> pregnancies in the, the different states. Um, but it's harder to, once things become nationalized, and obviously some rules in the Constitution, um, what we refer to as the Constitution, <laughs> um, some things are not a matter for the states. Um, but there aren't many of them. Uh, and it's a lot easier to move from one state to another, from one town to another, than it is to go form your own country. From the time she got into college by joining these sororities, very expensive to join. So when I say an elite organization, I mean that. Like, in order to join a sorority, you're going to be around a certain uh, financial bracket of people, right? Uh, then she goes on to be in this federalist society. Everything that she does through her education, both not only bolsters her because she is educated and she is smart and she does have the knowledgeable tools behind her to have an argument, but now she has a superiority complex in knowing that she's the only one who's working the system the right way. So in thinking that she's the only one working the system the right way, she automatically thinks that she has a leg up on anyone uh, entering into discourse with her. Uh, there was a quote yesterday in the New York Times from uh, Richard Gephardt saying, if you think about it, the foundation, the heart, the fabric of democracy is motivated, interested, participating citizens. And we're eating away at that in the way this rolls out. This is why lying is destructive of a constitutional republic. Um, I mean, that is one statement of it. Uh, but you can't have a president who lies, lies repeatedly. Everyone knows he lies. Um, what are his duties as president? Well, he may have to send boys into war. That, I think, would probably be one of the principal duties. Um, if that were necessary right now, I don't think the president is in a position to look the American people in the eye and say, we really need to do this and not have people think it's some sort of political prank. His word, as... Um, was said in the famous editorial in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette back when he first ran, his word is dirt. That's a problem for the man who is vested with the vast and mighty powers of, of the executive branch. We essentially don't have a president right now. Whatever you need a president for, we don't have it. Um, fortunately, the economy's good. We're not at war. The weather is nice. Um, but we don't really need a president right now, but um, I, <laughs> I wouldn't count on, on that continuing. Now, after graduating and receiving her Juris Doctor in 1988 from the University of Michigan Law, she served as a law clerk in Kansas City before moving to New York to start her own practice in corporate law. Shouldn't, shouldn't the people who were behind that training that spawned these terrorists, shouldn't they be charged? So consequently, you know, because alliances switch, an ally can never become an enemy. 
Um, so we don't attack anyone. I mean, then you're excluding also Osama bin Laden. So you know, the logic of your position is, in response to the most devastating attack on American soil ever, what America needs to do is nothing. So you didn't answer the nothing. question. Well, she's not answering my question. Yes, I did. Is it okay that human life, the value of human life, be superseded by that of oil, in your view? No, of course not. Okay. Thank you. A woman just died recently. She was 101 years old, and her name was Rennie, uh, I can't pronounce the last name. Uh, Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl, thank you. Right, celebrated and she had by a Hollywood. shocking resemblance to you, and do you realize that she did more to promote hatred? Filmmaker. That's a very good argument. Okay. I'm much like a Nazi. So, uh, my point Liberals is... Liberals are just getting smarter and smarter. That's it. I... You found the flaw in my speech. You my found the is, flaw. I take it all back. I take back my books. You're my, right. I resemble a What are the connections you can make in corporate law, and who are you representing and fighting for? The elite. That's all you're fighting for. You're not. You're not representing the little guy. And when has Ann Coulter ever stood up for the little guy? Corp- it doesn't happen. It's not her thing. Corporate lawyers are there to keep corporations from losing money. <laughs> like right. that's their whole job is to keep millionaires millionaires. And corporations feed lobbyists. Lobbyists feed senators. Senators feed DC. And Ann Coulter getting into corporate law is a direct line. That is the 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 finagling of corporate law and the finagling of of senatorial law is how lobbyists are allowed to work. And so I think that is a huge connection there is because she's going to start to meet people that know the people in the places that she wants to be. And so I was just wondering if you had any regrets. Any regrets? I, there were a few times I was too gentle on liberals and I take that back. <laughs> And I think that's it. And for any of you considering going to law school, I might call that a big regret. By 1994, Ann Coulter would leave her practice to work for the United States Judiciary Committee. One of her focuses was handling crime and immigration issues for Senator Spencer Abraham of Michigan, who designed legislation to expedite the deportation of immigrants convicted of any felonies. And, you know, we've just gotten kind of used to... we can spread our values around the world without destroying our own values. Anglo-Saxon values toward women and children and the elderly and the weakest members of society are, as all of these lawyers I've just cited, unique in the world. Yes, we can assimilate people. We do a great job assimilating people. But there's a reason the main, um, well, anti-immigration group in, in the U.S., is called Numbers USA. You can't do it when you're bringing in this many people and they're living in the same neighborhoods and the street signs are changed to, the, to, the, to their languages and their customs. Um, there was an official in the, in the Clinton administration who said, you know, we've passed the time where people, where immigrants have to assimilate to our values. It's about time we assimilate to their values. So, you know, I just want to give a warning to, well, my fellow American women and I guess I guess, British women, you have no idea how good you have it. And it's going to change if we, at least in my country, it's been going on a long time. We just need a break. We just need a pause. We'll pick up the immigration again after that. But we need to take some time to assimilate the ones already here. She also became a litigator with the Center for Individual Rights. This firm is 
nonpartisan and dedicated to the defense of individual liberties against the increasingly aggressive and unchecked authority of federal and state governments. It tends to be, I mean, the most, and I think this has ended up hurting the Democratic Party, um, certainly more than it's hurt the Republicans, these, these left-wing radicals, um, tenured radicals, as, as they're called in the title of a book, uh, you know, decided they wanted to take over college campuses. They knew they couldn't get in. Lord Churchill is not going to be teaching at Harvard. <laughs> that will not be happening. Um, so they've gone into sort of some of the lesser schools, third-tier schools, which also have great professors, but they also have the Ward Churchills. And then you get some kids um, who are basically semi-retarded at the schools, <laughs> and they're ginned up by people like Ward Churchill with these Nazi war rallies group of dangerous psychopaths, which is now the base of the Democratic Party. And that's really, I mean, that's kind of a bore, going to a school where they're standing up and crying and saying, oh, you're like Hitler. But I get, I, I like, I prefer, I prefer opposition, I would prefer for the opposition not to be retarded. <laughs> Working for the Center of Individual Rights, an organization that focuses on enforcement of constitutional limits on state and federal power, says what about her current direction in 1996? Well, it's interesting because it actually seems like a, a direction somebody who wants to help the little guy would go. But <clears throat> to be fair, Ann Coulter, let's take it, you know, let's take a objectivity into it a little bit. And let's say this is a young woman who is obsessed with the mechanics of government and how it worked. And what better way to like get to exercise that fun puzzle solving ability than to represent people when they're going up against the constitution. I mean, that really is all it is. She's turning, she's reverse engineering puzzles to figure out how to help these people not get constitutionally taken advantage of. Um, no, actually I, I don't know about that though. I never really considered the president's testimony on any of that particularly crucial. For one thing, we know he'll lie. Um, and for another thing, I, I really do think there's an enormous amount of circumstantial evidence on, on, well, pretty much every one of the scandals I describe in my book, which is the top ten. Um, and in some of them, there may not be enough for a criminal conviction. Criminal conviction requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There are also, um, for example, in an obstruction charge, the, the Webb-Hubble hush money case, I think is overwhelming on circumstantial evidence. But the reason obstruction of justice charges are difficult to prove is you have to prove what justice is being obstructed, um, which is why shredding documents is a great thing to do if you don't mind committing a crime. Um, because once you shred the documents, the prosecutor has to prove not only that you shred them, but what was in the documents. So it's one thing to show that Webb-Hubble was accepting an enormous amount of money right after he was indicted and then suddenly couldn't remember thing, anything about um, Clinton's um, behavior back in Little Rock and, and his testimony. Um, but they would have to also prove what it was Webb Hubble couldn't remember, which they can't do unless he remembers or unless somebody else remembers. Um, an impeachment, on the other hand, is not does not require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I think lawyers on TV are persuading people that everything, before you can even say something on TV, it's got to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, nothing, nothing in this world has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt except whether you've committed a crime such the society will put you in jail. Um, so it only has to be a preponderance of the evidence uh, for an impeachment. I, I don't think they really need the president's testimony on it, things like file gate or the web hubble hush money though as i say i kind of hope they won't get into it because you know they'll just get distracted and it will go on till the year 2010 at this stage ann coulter would join an unpaid legal team representing paula jones 
Paula Jones was a former Arkansas state employee who sued the current U.S. president at the time for sexual harassment. I'll just put it this way that he presented himself to me in a very unprofessional manner and I would call it sexual harassment. This harassment case would be the impetus of focus on President Bill Clinton's distinguishing characteristics of his harassment towards women. On the tape, prosecutors repeatedly challenge the president's truthfulness as he tries to explain how his admittedly misleading testimony last January was not, in fact, perjury. The statement of uh, your attorney, Mr. Bennett, Paul Jones' deposition, the statement that there was no sex of any kind in any manner, shape or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. If the if he, if is means is and never has been, that is not. A, that's one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. What about the president's testimony in January that he didn't remember ever being alone with Lewinsky? Was that well, a lie? Again, it depends on how you define alone. The president says he thought as long as others were in the Oval Office complex, he and Lewinsky were never really alone. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. A key issue, whether the president committed perjury in denying a sexual relationship with Lewinsky in January and made it worse by repeating those statements to the grand jury. You are free to infer that uh, my testimony is that I did not have sexual relations as I understood this term to be defined. In the Paula Jones case, President Bill Clinton denied having sexual contact with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky and later being exposed that he did. And this was perjury committed by him. This perjury led to an independent counsel led by Ken Starr to try to impeach President Bill Clinton. The Jones lawsuit led to a landmark legal precedent by the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that a sitting U.S. president is not exempt from civil litigation for acts committed outside of public office. As for the alleged cover-up, the president did not recall certain key conversations with Lewinsky and others after she became a potential witness in the Jones case, but he adamantly denies breaking any laws. Did I want this to come out? No. Was I embarrassed about it? Yes. Did I ask her to lie about it? No. In her testimony, Lewinsky says the president told her he had a secret life in which he struggled daily to resist his desire for women, even kept a calendar on how long he'd been good. And that is one of the few documents not made public so far. Mm, Lisa Myers, thank you this morning. An NBC News poll conducted after the tapes were broadcast found that 60% of Americans feel the president did not tell the whole truth. Even so, 65% feel he can still lead the country. Now, Ann Coulter is a Republican and believes and embraces that group's ideals completely. What do you think being a part of a case like this with a Democratic president and the media frenzy surrounding it, what do you think this invoked in her? She's going up against the party she doesn't like. This is like, mm, she's licking her chops. And on top of that, the guy did commit perjury. Say what you want to say about Trump and the Stormy Daniels thing. Total scumbag move, cheated on his pregnant wife, whatever. But he wasn't the president. Bill Clinton was doing this when he was the president. In the White House. In the White House. And he lied on oath. 
Like, dude, that's pretty big. I understand that looking back on it, especially with the circus that we're living in right now, it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal? But he lied under oath. That's so huge. If that was a big deal back then and something happened, we might not be in the circus win right now. That's the way you got to look at things. Like if someone slapped their foot down and said, you can't perjure as a president, you'll lose this job. We might not be where we are right now. That's some, That's just a way of looking at like when history looks the other way on certain things, you open the door for others. As for some of the other scandals, I'm kind of torn in how much I, I, I'd be interested in the House getting into because there's so many. I mean, if they really have a full and adequate hearing on all this, they're not going to be done until the year 2010. And there really is enough on this last scandal. I really think the only reason this one, um, the Star Report, the Lewinsky business, the lying, the obstruction of justice, the perjury... Um, is becoming the scandal that uh, if the president is impeached, he will be impeached on, is nothing more than the fact that it's the last scandal um, in a long series of scandals. And the witnesses against the president this time had seen how he and his men behave. They obstruct justice. They stonewall. They had seen Susan McDougal sit in jail for 18 months rather than simply answer the question under oath, did the president tell the truth? They'd seen Webb Hubble accept half a million dollars in hush money for, as the Washington Post put it, little or no work, um, and then suddenly developed the Alzheimer's that the president had. Um, they had seen billing records under subpoena show up two years later. This time, the witnesses against the president, Linda Tripp and Monica, kept tapes and kept DNA evidence. And I really think it's more a matter of um, the quantum of evidence coming out in this scandal. If, if only we had DNA evidence on the FBI files. The circus that we're living in right now, the political circus, is now it's not even about getting your point across. Now you're just doing whatever you got to do to fuck the other guy over. And that's what it seems like Pete's pre- Pete's point is like, oh, okay, you let Bill Clinton do that shit? No, just wait. We got a guy for you. And it happened with Bush and it happened with Trump. And it also happened with Obama. What am I talking about? Yeah. I mean, let's not forget <laughs> I mean, about him. Yeah. I, I can't believe I just overlapped that whole eight years. But yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of nonsense that happened with that too. Yeah. But we just but again, it's like, yeah, but look what this guy did. Look what this guy did. We're constantly comparing the current president to the guy before them or somebody down the line. I think when she saw the media frenzy, she had an opportunity to tell a lot more people exactly how she felt about the way mm-hmm. things work. Capital. Right there. Uh, yeah. Right to capitalize. But to understand um, what the president has done um, that is destructive of constitutional government, um, part of that, you, you have to understand what they expected from a constitutional government. This would be the first government by the people of the people for the people. They always expected statesmen to be virtuous, and that went for the president most of all. As I say, they had just fought a monarchy to throw off a king, and um, they all talked about how the president would always be a virtuous man. Interestingly, all three authors of the Federalist Papers, Hamilton, Jay, and Madison, all use the word virtue. Uh, Edmund Burke, um, who tried the most famous impeachment in Anglo-American history, uh, said impeachments are tried not upon the niceties of a narrow criminal jurisprudence, but upon the enlarged and solid principles of morality. Uh, Madison described the purpose of the Constitution, if we're going to get into James Madison's head, uh, said that the first aim of the Constitution was to ensure wise and virtuous leaders and to prevent their degeneracy. These are direct quotes. 
<clears throat> the, this is a full quote from Federalist uh, 57. The aim of every political constitution is, or ought to be, first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society, and in the next place to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold their public trust. Um, that's why they provided for impeachment. And in 1998, Ann Coulter would write her first novel based on her experiences called High Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Case Against Bill Clinton. The book was a journalistic approach following all the controversy surrounding Clinton's womanizing. And the last chapter even focused on how his history and the impeachment process works, making a case against Bill Clinton getting impeached. It's getting to be a little like, you know, the claims that Vince Foster was murdered. You hear one sort of odd thing, run that down, and that turns out not to be true. This is the way it is, the way they keep dragging former presidents through the mud. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they denounce FDR, claim he was committing adultery in the White House. And, well, no, actually, when he was president, um, it turns out he was not engaging in any adulterous acts. The, not only would virtuous men be elevated to the office, the framers... Um, believed, but the office would elevate the man, and they'd behave differently in the Oval Office. Uh, President Reagan never took his, his jacket off in the Oval Office. Um, now we can't even talk about the things that have gone on in the Oval Office. Um, and I think in a lot of these areas, there are there is a gray area. I think pe people wouldn't dispute um, whether an adulterous act um, in, under different circumstances as president would itself be impeachable, but we're, we're far beyond a simple adulterous act. And uh, you get the same sort of gray area that becomes irrelevant in the case of Clinton um, with the president's lying. Lying is unquestionably an impeachable offense. It is um, a government of the consent of the governed. When it gets to the point where the president lies, lies repeatedly, lies to his, by his own admission, lies to his cabinet, lies to the Congress, lies to members of his party, lies to his wife, lies to the public, lies under oath. The book made the New York Times bestseller list, and this would catapult her into being interviewed across news outlets and was an attractive, camera-ready, aggressive, conservative female, something that was not seen before. The more incendiary her comments, the more people wanted her on TV. That's the problem here. It's their faith belief in wanting to, to kill humans. That is the, the, the first impulse of the liberal religion, kill humans. Whether you're killing Africans because we won't let them use DDT or killing, killing babies in the em or killing human embryos for, for stem cell research that has produced nothing. Um, oops. Um, so that debate is exactly the reverse, and, and I guess, I, I mean, the, the, the examples, I, you know the precise examples. I read headlines about them um, on, I think, one you may be referring to, though you didn't say, is, is the breast cancer connection. Yes, between, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but how about researching it? Between women who've had abortions, there is some evidence, but no, we can't research that. No, I promise you, if there were a correlation between, I don't know, going to church on breast cancer, there would be $15 million studies on it. But no, we can't even look at this. can't look at that. Um, because liberals allow their faith beliefs to prohibit, um, to, to, to shut down science. And as I say in my book, I mean, this has been going on for 20 years. They lie about the AIDS virus because it's part of the liberal religion um, that, that we must not discriminate. So if a virus discriminates, we'll just lie about it. 
that really was the damnedest thing. Um, they're allowing people to die so that they can distribute condoms and teach kindergartners about fisting. A media pundit, by definition, is a person who offers to mass media their opinion or commentary on a particular subject. Here's an actual quote from Ann Coulter. If we took away women's right to vote, we never have to worry about another Democratic president. It's kind of a pipe dream. It's a personal fantasy of mine, but I don't think it's going to happen. And it's a good way of making the point that women are voting so stupidly, at least single women. It also makes the point it is kind of embarrassing. The Democratic Party ought to be hanging its head in shame that it has so much difficulty getting men to vote for it. I mean, you do see it's the party of women and we'll pay for health care and tuition and daycare. And here, what else can we give you, soccer moms? Well, first of all, I have a huge gay male fan base and none of them want gay marriage, so I got to side with them on this. Um, so that's point one. And point two, no, I mean, the, look, the point of, what is the point of marriage? The point of marriage is it's the most civilizing, um, it's how you create, you don't have, live in Lord of the Flies. It's the way you bring kids into the world um, and you raise them and you need a mommy and a daddy. And I, I mean, people from single parent families don't like to hear this, but the research, I don't know, I wish, wish them luck, but the research is, is pretty overwhelming that it's, it's not a day at the beach being raised, even you know, in a single parent family. You do need mommy and daddy. Um, you need both the masculine influence and the female influence. And I suspect, and we've already seen the results, as we all suspected, the gay divorce rate is through the roof. Um, but the, idea, the point of marriage is not to make people feel good about themselves. It is to create this environment for creating civilized little human beings. So you'd be against kind of gay couples who, who aren't married as well from adopting children? Yes. Is her goal to be a firebrand or does she truly believe what she says at this stage? I think she's too smart. I think she's a firebrand. I think it's all about the branding for her. I think she knows what her image is. I think she... I definitely think she's a firebrand, but I do think that she believed what she was saying. I mean, basically what she's saying is, is women vote with their heart and not with their heads. And... So I understand what she's trying to get at. Do I agree with it? Take it easy. You know, I mean, there's there's better ways to get that I mean, message across. Take it a across. lot more than easy. Well, yeah. general, generalizing everybody because of uh, their genitalia, I think, is yeah. where you mean by take it easy. Because yeah, there exactly. are individuals in women. Well, and also, also... Here's but she's the, attacking a certain woman, I think. She's also saying that the ultimate buy-in is a male buy-in in her message. Her message is that you can't get the Democrats, you can't get men to vote for you. Men are the ones that we need approval from which is not surprising considering her upbringing but like at the same time like she's saying all these things not remembering that there's a whole section of women who do vote for her and her way of thinking see i don't agree with that i don't think that she's going to be the type of person that just gets put okay i'll gladly be the woman i think those women will know she's not talking about them that's true yes yeah. yes see i think that she looks at it like look Look at the guys. Look how competitive they are. You have to be this competitive. And women as a whole, especially during that time, were not. A small slice of Christians would understand what I was talking about. And yeah, I want people to read my books. I put a lot of work into them. I think they're interesting. I think you will learn things. I think you'll see the world in a different way and understand things in a different way. So yeah, we give them zippy titles. Um, we put me on the cover in the black cocktail dress, usually because it annoys liberals. Smiling. Drives them crazy. <laughs> you had eight years of Bill Clinton. 
you had the the case that she was a part of, mm-hmm. and she's basically just saying, like, ladies, look, if you want to play with the guys, you got to play by their rules. You can't make them conform to your rules, or else you're going to look a certain way. Yeah, to but that your message is that her message is women shouldn't have the right to vote because they're women. And she didn't say that. Like, she didn't say right. that. What she said was, is she's like she she even said she it, said if they can take the right of women to vote, there would never be another Democratic president. But then she also said, as much as I like and the idea. Personal Personal fantasy hype cream. Yeah, yeah, but the fact I don't think she wants women to not be able to vote. I think a personal fantasy means a different thing than you think. He wants. She wants women to vote like her. Yeah, that's what it that's is. That's what yes. she's saying. Yeah, that's or, also or, fascist you, beliefs. That's also do it the way I think you should do it. Is fascist. Well, that's all. Ooh, like, see, now we're doing it. See, now she's got go. us doing yes. it. One quote. Is but it that's fascist? What it is. Though that's the extreme version True. of what. You, that's, that's what. That's what people again, do. But what does she do though? When you want to do something democratic, it's communist. Right. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. But my point is, there's magic to that. Her her line, her her line of thinking isn't even in line with her line of thinking. Is what I'm saying. (laughs) No, her (laughs) line of thinking is an individual. Like I said, she believes in individual rights, and yeah, she's tied to. She's a Christian who is anti-abortion. She would, you know, get rid of Roe versus Wade tomorrow if she could. Anything that's a hard line on the Republican side, and Coulter is is pretty much agreed with it. You know, uh, gay marriage, all that stuff. She's agreed with like no anything that's a hard line on that. However, her hard line and her verbiage, it, it gets you thinking and riled and you want to attack it, but there's no commentary on the other side. And she understands that because she understands language. I think that's what gets us all the time. She's very good with how she says it. Haven Monahan allegedly inviting this girl to um, a completely innocent frat house um, being raped on a, on a glass table, um, gang raped, um, with the girl's back into the shards of glass. And I'm reading through this article. When it got to her saying, one of the frat boys said, move its leg, I said, okay, I'm calling BS on this story. Whereas, you know, the rest of the media was, ooh, it gave me goosebumps. Um, that was that was believed for about two weeks. There was a liberal journalist, Richard Bradley, who started saying, eh, not believing it. Um, and he was viciously attacked by feminists for saying he thought it was suspicious. Eventually, it did come out. The whole thing was made up by a delusional woman um, and and just bought wholesale by a reporter at Rolling Stone who wanted to believe it. But she also has to realize that at a certain point, you're going to be a caricature of yourself. But I also, take I also think just personality wise, too, we can't take away the fact that it may also not be her being so smart sometimes. She may genuinely have grown up in a male-dominated household where she saw the value in what being a male doing these things did for three different men. You know, two whole generations, generations before Benedict, benefiting from this thought process and these these lines of thought that she's talking about. This could genuinely be just her being like, look, this is the way it works. Like, I know it works. I've seen it work. The entitlements programs cannot be saved in their current forms. When 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 FDR um, introduced Social Security, the average lifespan of a man, I think, was about 64 of a woman was about 66. We nag you to death. That's why you die sooner. Um, and now, you know, the average lifespan is like 90 years. How about just raise the age to the way it was to begin with? So for Democrats, and I do not believe there's one elected Democrat who has admitted this. Now, that, that is just a lie. They aren't even, well, maybe Debbie Wasserman Schultz is that stupid. But the rest of them 
are not that stupid to believe that they can save Social Security. There are going to be changes one way or another. I think she had that mindset. I think she got around a lot of women that were not using that mindset and watching them fall behind and hate her. And that just fueled her to write these comments. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you. She's like, if you don't want to compete, if you want to have an excuse, sit in line behind me. You don't deserve to vote. I guarantee you that was her mindset, more or less. Like, If you're not willing to step up and see how things work and you just want to complain in the corner, stay in the corner. Yeah, this is just her. This, this is, isn't necessarily our take. I just <laughs> oh, want to no, make no, sure I get this across <laughs> because people will lose their minds. <laughs> yeah, no, they will. We're trying to be objective here and analyze what this person who has been so much of a firebrand who has been so subjective. Yeah, yeah. How we're we're only saying these things and pondering these things the way we are because we are fascinated by people. We are. Fa- how did she get to where she is? How did she become the person who thinks this way? You know, we don't know. I literally know zero people that thinks the way Ann Coulter thinks and I would it's interesting to me how did she become so hardlined how did she become so black and white how did she become this point where she was she was able to steadfast walk into an argument even sometimes being presented with facts that totally null and void her argument and still still not have the the ability to waver like that's interesting to me this tweet comes in from Susan how about we all resist the use of Christian Muslim and or Jewish as labels for terrorists and criminals? Well, <laughs> when the terrorists are operating because they believe they are on a religious mission, when they're shouting Allah Akbar as they're flying planes into the World Trade Center or shooting up Fort Hood, then I think we have what's known as a Muslim terrorist. And we've had an awful lot of terrorism from people who think they are fulfilling Allah's will by slaughtering infidels and and to stick your head in the sand and say that's not islamic terrorism is not going to make us safer it is certainly not going to make us safer to be mayor michael bloomberg of new york and blame the the car bomb in times square on tea partiers upset about health care and then oh surprise it was a muslim terrorist i know a lot of people that are like ann coulter mm-hmm. and the problem is is in today's society if somebody disagrees with you block them on facebook don't talk to them let them know they don't matter ann coulter i'll give her credit she's buddies with bill maher and i'm sure we'll get to that later mm-hmm. she's buddies with a lot of these left-wing democratic people in the senate she's friends with them yep And what makes her so good is she understands the inside better than a lot of the people that hate her. We need these liberal talk radio shows to keep the tinfoil hat types busy while we run the country, democratize the Middle East, and secure our borders. That's a speech from Indiana University that Ann Coulter made. It's blinding because she is black and white. And we are all like, no, Ann, there's a gray area. And she's like, no, there's not, you fucker. That's why she's blinding. That's why so many She's people, steadfast. I mean, blinding with people get so angry with her. It's yeah. Because like, no, dude, there is other angles. No, there's not. And that's, that's, there's a strength of like, own your conviction, own what you say. Well, she, the people, if you follow what I say, the world will run, run fine. Give it a shot. And it's like, no, we're not going to, uh, you know, not take away abortion. Why not? That's, that's her opponent. Why not? See what happens when you do. People will take responsibilities for themselves and those who don't, they get left the fuck behind. We're not in the business of leaving people behind, though. That's. But I think that, to your point, mm. if people 
the way to get Ann Coulter's respect is to treat Ann Coulter like Ann Coulter would treat Ann Coulter. Mm. Is her steadfastness and her convictions, the minute you show her that you have a waiver in your conviction, she doesn't respect you, I don't think. There's I blood think, in the water. Yeah, I think it's it's got to go back and forth. I think the way the same way that you have to go, that's not the way it is, mother. She, the way she says that, that's not the way it is, fucker. You got to look at her. No, that is the way it is, fucker. And that's like the way you have to handle it. Because her steadfastness and her convictions, you're not going to fight it with, well, look at, see why your convictions are wrong? <laughs> you're not going to fight it that way. This part one was just supposed to be more history on her and all that stuff. And look what we're at. That's yeah. what she does. Yeah. That's what she does. It's, it's like powerful. we are virtually going back and forth before I even get to all the incendiary stuff. Yeah. Before I even get to the. Off the, one quote. Off one quote. But we can't outlawyer them. They're fanatics. They have the entire Harvard Law School faculty behind them. Um, and so we were losing, by and large, and most small um, towns don't want to spend millions of dollars defending, you know, a, a, a crash in the town square. They, they just don't have the money. Um, what finally ended that, once and for all, very quickly, was Bill O'Reilly, John Gibson, and Fox News just shining a light on liberals. They are like roaches. You just want to shine a light on them. <laughs> And that is what TV accomplished. This is why liberals like to operate through the courts. They, they don't rely on democracy. They don't like democracy in Iraq. They don't want democracy in America. Because they know, they, they, they know what Ronald Reagan knew. You can always trust the American people. Um, and you can trust the American people. You let Americans know what's going on. You let them vote. And 99% of the time, they will do the right thing. That's why liberals prefer the courts, because we don't know what's going on with the courts. They pilot a case up to the Supreme Court, and they have five people to vote for them, and suddenly a reform rabbi can't give a non-sectarian prayer at a high school graduation. Just with what I just said, 50% of the audience love me, and 50% wants to beat the shit out of me. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's, that's just what it is. Well, anytime we say anything positive about her, they're thinking that. That's what a saying. demographic will think. Yeah, that there's, a por- there's a percentage Again, that... But that's what I'm saying. That demographic does understand that this is a documentary and discussion podcast. They're like, you're just spouting facts. No, we're not. We're There's not. a discussion not, portion. None of this. <laughs> this is a discussion portion. None also, of this is facts. I'm an idiot. I will yeah. say it on record. <laughs> and I will say on record, Jocelyn is an idiot. Liberals call or Democrats call Republicans every name in the book. Racist, sexist, homophobes, anti-Semites... Um, you know, going to turn back the clock on civil rights. The one thing you can't say about someone is that he's unpatriotic, as long as if it's a Democrat. You can say it's not true, or the sign of true patriotism, rather. True pa- patriotism is supporting the public schools. True patriotism is opposing the Patriot Act. But you can't say true patriotism is supporting your country. By 1999, she would be a sought-after and regular columnist on magazines like George. Her opinions always got a reaction, and views were attracting many readers. One of the things you say is the religious right is misrepresented by the liberal media. The religious right is presumed to be self-evidently fanatical, intolerant, um, as for example, the quote that has so captured the imaginations of gossip columnists, my calling you the affable Eva Braun of morning TV, um, you, they can't put everything in context, but the context of that was a speech in which you blamed the dragging death of James Byrd on, on the intolerance created by evangelical Christians, which 
is just an, an astonishing state. What power do you have when you can always get a reaction from a reader, good or bad? Um, we didn't even have to read it. We just had to hear it. And we were like, I have many opinions about this. I mean, literally just play back the last five minutes of our discussion. I think that this time in our news media, after Bill Clinton, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I felt like that's when news became entertainment, is when we started to see this want to mix the two. The roundtable discussions. The roundtable discussions, like all of these things. And I think that there is a financial power in being able to elicit reactions, which we have seen. There is financial power in being able to elicit reactions but with your writing. My hobby has become my life. I have the greatest life imaginable. I think I have a greater life than anyone in the universe, in fact. I sleep till noon. I work in my underwear. I'm my own boss. No one can fire me. I'm the only people who could ever fire me are the American people if they don't want to hear me anymore, if they don't buy my books, if they don't read my columns. When Howard Stern made it to New York and he was pulled and they were getting ready to, he was pissing people off. More phone calls were coming in from that place and they were getting ready to fire him until the advertisers jumped on board, until they realized, wait a minute, it doesn't matter if these people love him. He is the number one rated show by a landslide. People, the people that hated him, more people that hated him tuned in to hear what he was going to say just so they go back to Pete's point. And this is pretty much Pete's point for every Rise to Offend episode. We love to, to hate. hate. And when Ann Coulter said something, it wasn't the fact of what she said. If you would have just read what she said, you're like, yeah, whatever. Oh, Ann Coulter said, you bitch. You know what I mean? Like you would just lose your mind because you were already associating with what she said right now to everything that she has said in the past. She has got... There is a coal car of anger toward, for her just getting ready to get thrown in the fire. Why are you friends with Ann Coulter? They always ask me that, which just amazes me because why can't you be friends with someone you don't agree with? And especially when that question comes from liberals who are supposed to be the ones who are for tolerance. <laughs> tolerance can't pause at where we just don't agree with someone, can it? This, I think we all should subscribe. I mean, even my, there's like resonations of my own real life in this conversation right now. We should all subscribe a little bit more to the Church of Pete in that, think about this. When we we see something that we're like, I agree with that, what do we do? Nothing. We do nothing. When we agree with it, the most we do is double tap it for a like, maybe. So maybe instead of trying to spend so much time focusing on the things that make us upset or angry or negative feeling, we should do the opposite. But unfortunately, the consumer right now and since then has told us that what they want to do is sit around and be angry. They just want to sit around and hate. That's all they want to do. The reason Trump supporters didn't care about the Access Hollywood tape, the reason he could have shot someone on Fifth Avenue, the reason his support was like tempered steel was because Republicans had been lied to so many times over and over and over again. And here there was this wild candidate who never backed down, even when he said crazy stuff. We thought, finally, maybe this one will keep his promises. If he betrays the voters... You will not see the rage and fury of the base, not the ones I was describing with a 3D chest, but the real base, like, like there will be against, against Donald Trump. He will not be able to get them back. There is no number of, of rallies he can hold and promising to build the wall. He's got to build the wall. 
And right now he's looking at two paths. He could be, um, he could be America's greatest president if he keeps his campaign promises. He could be up on Mount Rushmore. He could be greater than Ronald Reagan because we are so close to the end right now. We are in overtime. Um, the game is tied. We got three outs left, and and or three strikes left. If he if he makes it. He'll be, he'll be the greatest hero and the greatest president America has ever had. But if he doesn't, he will be the man who wrecked America. Follow my co-host, Brandon Hahn, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Hahn Comedy. Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. And Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Sylvia. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. And make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on metalsucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover rise to offend at gmail.com discover the life and work of ann coulter go to ann and discover her books and columns also you can see when she's doing speaking appearances and search her for interviews on youtube for past discussions all content provided on this show is copyrighted by its owners Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask from you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Next week, we will do part two of three on Ann Coulter. Until next week, Repeat Offenders, RTO Podcast, signing off.